0: Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in ho- founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed Kurt Gardner, engineering manager of data engineering at Australia insurance company, NIB Group. Kurt shared some insights into NIB's journey so far, including the search for something like Data Mesh before Jmac published her first, first blog post, the tool choices they've made, their slow roll ap- approach to replacing parts of their legacy implementation. They talk. Kurt talks about the application strangler pattern quite a bit. There's more info on that in the show notes, how they got started and and much more. One interesting tidbit was similar to Andrew Jones at GoCardless. The first consumers from data mesh data products were other application engineers, sometimes of the data products for analytics purposes, but more often they could now use those data products to more easily consume something they were previously stitching together in a Frankenstein's monster type of way for their Operational applications. So it just kind of opened up some more communication lanes between teams, which I think was a very interesting knock on effect of this. Kurt talked about some common frustrations as well. You know, first being that the data consumers were rediscovering the data model after piecing together uh, things together from the direct sharing of the application model. When the domain teams, if we think about doing data right, should be sharing the data model. (laughs) Second one would be the mismatch between learning how to get the data and how to actually use it. And number three, finding the right balance between autonomy and governance within data mesh relative to data products. He kind of said, if you're not feeling at least a little bit of pain, you probably haven't put enough governance in. (laughs) So I like that kind of rule of thumb. Much of NIB's approach is to execute on the small-scale tactical level while building incrementally for the bigger strategic focus. An example of that would be helping teams to design their data products somewhat manually while building the reusable tooling to make the process far less manual going forward. Start with helping today to build the automation for tomorrow kind of approach. They're building towards engineering maturity and more resilient and reliable approaches with their data mesh in general. Along their journey, there was some internal pushback from data consumers, especially those who are used to consuming from the data warehouse. To do data mesh right, we both agreed on the need to set things up so they can evolve. That will frustrate or scare some people, and it's important to work with them to see why that evolution matters. There also needs to be a high tolerance for failure within a data mesh implementation. You will not get everything right on your first go. Kurt also said some very nice things about event streaming patterns, especially CQRS. You can see more info about that in the show notes if you want to read up on it more. There's there's a link in there. Some pithy nuggets of wisdom from Kurt that are highly applicable to data mesh in my view. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. So have some empathy, have some fun, move forward together, and understand it's a journey, it's a process. With that, enjoy the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Really excited about this episode today. I've got Kurt Gardner here. He's the Engineering Manager of Data Engineering at the NIB Group in Australia, or Oz, as some people like to call it. So, um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about NIB's journey through trying to do the early stages of implementing a data mesh and kind of what learnings they've taken, maybe some uh, pitfalls that they've, they've run across that others can avoid, and what, what's working, what's not, and just a, a general conversation. So uh, really excited for this kind of format. So Kurt, if you don't mind, if you could give a little bit of an introduction to yourself and and uh, your role in the, in the company, and then we'll jump into the journey.
1: Yep, sure. I'm uh, engineering manager of data engineering because you can never have engineering in the title enough. Uh, I came... I've been at NIV Group, actually a bit about NIV Group. So we're primarily private health insurance in Australia, but we also have a couple of travel insurance brands. We've got health insurance in New Zealand. We're looking at trying to move more into health partners, so helping people stay healthy rather than just recovery. And a big part of this is investing in in data assets. Uh, My background, I've got a bit of a software engineering. I've done a bit of time in DevOps. Uh, Like it was a sentence, I've done a bit of time in cloud. Architecture and places like that. So, got really excited when I came into data and I started looking around for things like domain-driven design and microservices and decentralisation and, and stumbled across Data Mesh. So th- this was very early days, um, and and it really spoke to me because it it came from a lot of the journeys we've already passed about breaking down barriers between devs and ops and things like that. Um, I, I think my early frustration was. There was no recipe. Like it's like, yeah, this is a bunch of really good principles. Like, why aren't why isn't everybody knowing where their data is and how to find it and keeping it secure and trustworthy and all this kind of stuff? Like, the data it's It's just good principles. Why aren't we already doing this? But as I kind of got more and more into the data space, uh, just just realize the complexity. Like the spreadsheets, as far as the eye can see, there's so many different people asking questions of data. There's a socio Uh, our socio-political element. So I I came in naively thinking that you could ask simple questions with clear definitions and answers, which is not always the case. So how many customers do we have really depends on whether you're an auditor or an executive or a marketing manager or uh, someone managing the logins for the platform, right? So a lot of nuance, but yeah, super excited about this.
0: Yeah, like, what, what what does customer mean is one of those fun uh, things where it's different in every department. And, you know, <laughs> is, is it the household? Is it the payer? Is it the whatever? And so, um, yeah, and and I think the uh, that's a common story for people kind of coming from the software engineering side of, well, uh, a one is a one and a zero is a zero, but <laughs> w- when you get into data, it's the semantic meaning is is like everything. The metadata is often more important than the actual data
1: itself. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a mindset that attracts people to things like software engineering, too, that the fact that there's a problem here and I can definitely solve it, whereas there's so much more nuance in these spaces.
0: Yeah. And, and but also what you said, uh, the, I'm, talking to a lot of people from software engineering that have moved over into the data space, and they're like, why, why haven't we been applying these principles? Like, come on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think the answer to that is it's hard. It's I, I think some elements of it are, it, it is genuinely harder than software engineering. Maybe some of its maturity, too. I, I mean, things like DevOps, that movement's probably 10, 15 years old and pioneered by by large organizations like Netflix and Amazon uh, Microsoft, etc. Yeah, whereas data, it, it feels like the technologies have been a lot more complex. Uh, managing databases at scale still needs a lot of low-level engineering effort. And I think one of the things that really helped the DevOps movement was simplification of a lot of these technologies. So moving away from needing to manage disk space and kernel versions and things like that up to just worrying about the running software. And, and people have been shouting about this since, I think, the 1960s. <laughs> uh, that we're helping you deliver just focus on the business value. Um, I, I think it's been getting more and more true, but it's never completely true. It's a bit of an asymptote. Uh, and the same's happening in data space, right? So we're seeing uh, explosion of things like Snowflake and BigQuery and Redshift, which are really reducing that operational load where you go back five years to handle a data set of maybe a couple hundred gig. You need really intense indexing on disks. You need to worry about, the Sparks and Hadoops. And, and these are really quite complex engineering tools. We're moving to this world where you can run SQL over masses of data. And for most organizations, our, our organization's about 12 1,300 people. And so Medium Enterprise, the size of the data can generally be pretty well handled with, say, Snowflake, a moderately sized warehouse, and a whole bunch of semi-clever SQL.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing where the tooling is gone, but now we need to work on like the additional tooling to actually drive the business value instead of uh, you know trying yep. to use them all as, as uh, treat everything as a nail because they're hammers. So, um, so why don't you walk me through a little bit about the early journey of of NIB Group? Like, what were you brought in with? this already in mind or was this something that you had seen and then kind of how did that evolve and maybe how how did you work on driving buy-in because this is a big shift for a lot of companies
1: yep so still driving buy-in um uh, <laughs> so i guess like i said i've, I've been at the niv quite a number of years and started as a developer so my earliest uh, engagement with say the data warehouse team which was which still is largely centralized um, was basically our application would go down at about 5 p.m. The One of the upgrade managers would walk down and say, this is stopping everything. And we would spend the next hour working out that it was someone running a really bad SQL join on an application database, which just brought the application down. So uh, there's this clearly, and I hear this story pretty commonly, there's a need for the data. There's um, this mismatch between how to get it and how it needs to be used. Um, and like I said, I went through that DevOps journey and flash forward this this five to 10 years, um, came in looking for a solution to a lot of the problems we were having. Like, how do you solve this disconnect between what data is being made available or not being made available, what they have to go out and get these database replication tools? Um, why are people in the analytics space, rediscovering the data model and what the data means that the app developers and the system architects have already done this work. It it seemed like this massive chasm between the producers and the consumers. So I I knew that a lot of these problems were solved in the dev world with microservices, with the main driven design. So starting to think around the business business design rather than thinking about how the org was structured in terms of teams. Uh, The problem with teams is, you wait about three years and and none of them exist anymore because they've all been reshuffled and ownership of applications and data has just all moved around. And if you've structured your systems around these teams, it's just too hard to move this stuff. And and there's no value in the work other than simplifying the maintenance, which is really hard to quantify. Anyway, so came into this space, had a lot of starry ideals from our DevOps movement. So we've moving to microservices, mini services, Uh, Saw this massive gap that existed between the producers, consumers, and and felt there must be something out there. Spent a lot of time researching and and came across the original ThoughtWorks article. Um, I'm probably closer to the ground, so my approach was very much, let's start thinking about the the tools we currently have, the way we're heading, and socialize it with some of the the data warehouse teams, which sat alongside where I am. Um, Bear in mind, I've was brought into bootstrap data engineering at ID. Previously, it was kind of done begrudgingly by whoever was left holding the can. So <laughs> if you need the data and you don't have it, you're now a data engineer. I don't care that it says data warehouse engineer on your title. You, you now have to get the data as well. So it was this real hodgepodge of tools. You kind of reached for whatever was there. And um, a, a lot of the data then and a lot of the maintenance effort It was just tedious painful and, and quite expensive because it hadn't been strategically done um, so the first step was very much let's start looking at the technologies out there so we came across snowflake we put in a few years before but hadn't really got a large amount of take up uh, DBT was something a few people in the analytics and data warehouse space were interested in I having my developer background I love the idea of python and spark and doing it all in streams and event sourcing and things like that but given the vast majority of people in this organization that were likely to use the output of this tend to be analysts, managers, etc., It just made so much more sense to go a, a SQL-based path, uh, running things in Snowflake with a bit of SQL, be it DBT or plugging in Tableau. It's such a lower bar than trying to teach people Python and Pandas. Um, Yeah, I I
0: think that visualization layer is something that we're going to see more and more because when you think about data democratization, you don't need everybody to be able to access all data everywhere. Paco Nathan talked about this on some uh, podcast, I can't remember which, but he just said, you know, the citizen data scientist, I hate that concept because I don't want the the exec admin to be going and doing data science. but when there is, you know, kind of competing priorities, I want that executive admin to be able to say, hey, here is four data points uh, to be able to make your decision, right? That, that it's mm-hmm. not even just that the, um, that the uh, executive is necessarily able to access this data, but it's like that you can put data in front of people to help them make a decision at any point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I think it, it ignores like this, I, I agree with the citizen data scientists and every analyst you talk to or data warehouse or anyone as a data specialist will say, these people don't understand the difference between a, a geometric and an arithmetic mean, and, and they'll trot out some kind of stats jargon. And it ignores the fact that so many people are, are already finding data through whatever source they can and answering their own question. And the problem with that is, it's normally a spreadsheet that gets shared through email or a shared drive or, or somewhere that it, it has. Uh, there's there's opportunities to improve the security of it, but but data quality is unknown. The, the process itself is brittle because all it takes is, oh, that person doesn't work here anymore. They they moved on. They won the lottery. Whatever. Um, and, and all of a sudden, the executive can't get their numbers for that particular report that has just somehow organically evolved like a fungus in the back of the fridge. <laughs> so I, I think, and, and same thing we did with our DevOps journey is if, if you can accept the fact that people are going to access this data and make sure you're baking in really strong levels of security first, which um, we're trying to allow the autonomy, but keep the security in, which is a really interesting um, balancing act. I, I think people, uh, my take on security is if you don't know it's there, it's probably not strong enough. But if it hurts just a little bit, but you can still do your job, that's probably the ideal. Uh, but if you're sitting there waiting on requests, then you've probably gotten a bit too far the other way, right?
0: Yeah, I, I think about access by default, and it's like, well, what what is, the, what is the bad case scenario? Not what's the worst case scenario, but what's mm-hmm. the bad case scenario of everybody having access to default? For these columns, right? Yes, if it's PII, mm. there's really really bad. <laughs> right? Yes, but if it's not PII, then you should just have access by default for most aspects of a data product for most because it just. But exactly what you're talking about of, um, you've you've got to enable the the domain teams to actually be able to to manage those security decisions and have. A, a governance team to go to when they're not sure, or that yes. the governance team goes, "Hey, here, here are your flags as to this is when you should come to us." And we're not the gatekeeper; we're the enabler. Like, let's figure that out with you. But yeah, it's this, it's an interesting push pull. Like, and and this, I don't think anybody's figured it out or talked about it publicly about figuring it out.
1: Well, this is still the journey that we're on, and and we're sort of we we have solutions, but because our teams are still fairly centralized in terms of data warehouse and analytics. Um, we've been on the journey about a year and we've started with a data product. We've got a strategy, which I'm I'm kind of proud of, that is a data strangler pattern. The idea is we're surfacing as much data as we can in the tooling of choice, which at the moment is pretty much, uh, there's an element of Amazon, so tools like EventBridge and Kinesis and Snowflake with DBT over the top. And the plan is the more we get into Snowflake and we're using a variety of tools, keeping our extract and load to be dumb pipes. And the beauty of that is it doesn't matter that we've mixed and matched. We've written our own in-house thing for the Infamix databases to us data because there's just nothing off the shelf. We've got five for a whole bunch of stuff like Salesforce because it's just such simple plug and play. Uh, we've played around with some Salesforce AppFlow connectors, which are in Amazon. Uh, we do a lot of our own event bridge kinesis for the in-house built Amazon hosted apps. Uh, we've got a range of other things that come through S3. The beauty of that is keep it dumb pipes Mix and match, doesn't matter. Just land the data, and then we can worry about the best transformation tool. We can worry about overlaying metadata and security at that layer. That's the picture we're working on.
0: Do you want to, um, the analogy of Data Strangler, like what, What? just so we don't have to go into super deep on it, but for if people want to look up, what's the, the pattern that you're uh, yep. matching the of?
1: So there's, there's an application pattern from Martin Fowler again. Uh, men, uh, the groups written a lot of these, but they've got a an application strangler pattern, and the idea is a way to replace legacy technology. So a lot of organizations have a monolith, and one thing we've learned from application projects is if you try and replace a whole thing in one big project, it's going to fail. I, I'll make up a stat here: something like eighty percent of the projects fail. They're all over budget. They're all over time. Uh, they miss scope, etc. So the idea of a data strangler pattern, sorry. The idea of the application Strangler pattern is it's like a Strangler fig where the fig just puts a root down around an existing tree. And the analogy is with the application, you put a layer over the top of part of the functionality. Maybe it's, say, your customer interaction piece. And you slowly put this layer over the top of all of it, much like a Strangler fig puts roots down all around the tree. And eventually you have this layer so that you can just take the tree out from inside and you have a whole new tree based on these new patterns. So this layer over the top now means that if everything's talking to your layer, you can take away that backend system and replace it with something new. The intent with the data strangler pattern is, we have we've got a number of acquisitions. So we have different technologies from different parts of the business, depending on when they were bought, who was involved and architected at the time. So if we start getting all of this data into, say, Snowflake and all of our new systems getting built in DVT for transformation, we can start hollowing out some of the old processes too. So we've had one that used to be Data Stage. It took nine hours to run in the old system. We've put it into Snowflake, runs in about five minutes, right? And it's now a simple SQL transform that a much larger group of people inside NIB and the industry can now understand and pick apart.
0: Exactly. I, I think I think this makes a lot of sense, uh, especially if you think about it at the, the layer level of that's kind of what the data mesh should be when you think about just one giant layer of, of hmm. that, that you don't have people trying to say, I'm going to access this data product. It's I'm going to access this information. I don't care. If it's in data product A, data product B, or a combination of data mm. product A and B, like how how can we get to that experience in the like ideal state and the end state? Yeah. We're we're way 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 ahead of ourselves on on getting there. But like when you really think about that experience, um, you know, if if you if you think about shopping uh, on like an e-commerce site. You don't care what department one thing is in versus another, really. You know, you might be doing that for browsing, but you don't really for when I, I go to check out, I don't have three different shopping carts. I have one shopping cart. And so you kind of have that, that experience that we're going for of, okay, you want to check out your the data that you're going to look at. And you know, you're, it's got explanations of what you're trying to get and why and, you know, the combination of that and, and yep. the
1: analogy starts to fall apart a little bit, but it's, it's <laughs> like... Well, I was going to say, we've, we've got a thing called the Smart in Australia where they'll compare different brands or even the nutritional information. So you can look at one and compare it to the other. And I think it's the same with data um, in an, an organization of any moderate size, you're going to get duplication. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> duplication of of, uh, data in some ways, but that's when layering things like data quality checks over the top and, and metadata. So um, something we discussed previously was these things are socio-political in nature that different departments will have different versions of customer, right? So you might actually have a data model, three data models for customer and, and starting to make that a bit more discoverable and structured hopefully helps people understand which one's the right choice or or which one makes sense for the problems they're trying to solve.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of double click into, especially about how did you actually get started, get started? Like this is something where a lot of people are, are finding reasons to not get moving that they're getting in their own way, right. Of, Oh, we have to solve X or Y or Z problem before we can get going. What what did you start with and, and maybe how did that go? And and what learnings would you say? Uh here's the stuff that people should take from this and here's the stuff that people should. not
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't be like us in this regard. Um so we it's a good question. Where did it all start? I think a lot of it... So we were adopting new tools. DBT was new to us. Uh, Snowflake, like I said, we had, but it wasn't probably a big part of our solutions. So the first step was just to start identifying some of the people that were going to be a key part of this journey, taking a solution, a project that they're already kind of actively working on and getting them to start moving it to DBT, to start exploring, to start understanding what the differences were, what the gaps were. So we did that for probably a month or two, I think. Um, And and this starts getting people just that little bit more comfortable because you don't want to be learning to drive the car in in the craziest part of traffic, right? You're going to run into something. Uh, From there, we mapped out the domains because that's a key part of data mesh, understanding how that maps back to the, the systems we have and trying to identify... It's a stakeholders in the organization that are probably more interested in this, right? So I spent a bit of time going around various, we have guilds, we have architecture review working groups, I've kind of throwing this out a number of times as part of that socialization. Do people think this is madness? Will they be inclined to help? Who are my allies in this space? Um, so once you understand that domains pull apart, just what your business does, you, hopefully you've already got some of this in terms of uh, architecture, documents of team structures, and then identifying people that are a bit more open to actually working with the new technologies, the new approaches. And once you've got that, you start making sure you're surfacing the data in. Uh, we've brought in a few consultants to help at times, but also making sure we're getting the internals involved because I think these projects are the more interesting ones, which is always good for motivation and, and engagement. Um, we So we picked a data product. Actually, we've picked a couple now. And went right back to the source, started talking to the apps teams. Okay, what's your data model? What's it look like? We're also engaging with the analysts. What sort of information do you need? Um and, and what's the gaps? So we've then we've got inner sourcing at NIME, which means it's it's internal open sourcing essentially. So we've had data engineers doing pull requests on upstream APIs um, or stream publishers to add extra fields in that that the Apps teams didn't realize were needed downstream, or had been added on. Uh, where it was surprising, I think, was we started publishing some of these through EventBridge, and we were kind of working towards the analytics end use cases, so plugging these into data warehouse transforms, uh, tableau reports, etc. But we found that with a number of the data products. When talking in various groups, someone would say, oh, actually, we're doing a project right now, and we really need an event subscription for this. We we need a trigger. They, they didn't care too much about the data, but they often just needed to know that something happened. So a member joined or a, a product was paid, something like that. And so some of our earliest consumers for data mesh came from a little bit left field, but I think that's one of the appealing factors is that it's intended to start unifying the application usages and the analytics usages. The interesting part off the back of that was I wasn't anticipating the application users to start using it so quickly because I felt like they've mostly already solved these problems. They've got APIs, they know how to call them, uh, whereas analysts sort of struggle with that stuff. But the hard part's been that the analytics use case, it needs history, right? And APIs aren't designed to support history. Things like EventBridge, actually Kinesis uh, only holds a week or EventBridge might only have recent events. So trying to go back through and work out how to get entire histories, uh, working out versioning on these things, oh, we missed a field. Do we replay everything? Will that now trigger everyone? Um, There's a lot of challenges in those spaces. We've had just simple things like, oh, we need a new field in that upstream API, and it's like, okay, but we're a bit swamped, so it's going to take us a while to QA it, um, but there seems internally there's, there's some that are more keen than others, but they're, they're definitely starting to recognize that they can add value to this process, that there are other consumers that if they start thinking about these data products in the same way that have been with APIs for quite a while now, that they can help solve more of the organization's problems.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, a couple of those are through lines. Um, uh, I interviewed uh, Andrew Jones from GoCardless, who's not doing data mesh, but he, he said the same thing about they're trying to implement data contracts. And what they found was the early consumers are these application engineers because they go, we didn't know this existed or, oh, we've been <laughs> trying, to, we've been trying yeah. to reconstruct these things from, um, from scratch. Yes. deriving
1: uh, or or deriving things right that people calculate things in the most unusual ways because it's almost like trying to read tea leaves when trying to work out the data and answer questions sometimes you you pull meaning from seemingly meaningless things
0: i I think the one of the biggest uh incrementals from data mesh conversations I'm, i'm having is that uh just getting people in a room and talking to each other mm. where you just go, Hey, teams, you, you really need to just start talking to each other. And, I and, know. and but,
1: Yeah. Sorry.
0: Well, well, you were saying that the data engineering team is doing some of this stuff on behalf of the consumers. Are you doing that to, to kind of for the initial piece or to hold their hands or to make it easier for the producers or like, is, is that the long-term goal, or are you kind of stuck in that? Like, how do you get out of that? Like, it's just a lot of things around that.
1: So we're, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing tactical things, so solving for the specific use case, but also strategically uplifting at the same time. So we've found concrete problems that need to be solved now, but we've also built a little bit of reusable tooling. We've built a new structure in Snowflake. So we've redesigned how we do our database, our schema, our um, tables. And we're doing this to build our facade, but also to give us an ability to have a lot more flexibility going forward. We're removing some of the historic uh, structures that look more like the business acquisitions than the actual business that we run. Um, I, I see data engineering, at least at the moment, while we're building up this capability, very much as that. Um, central communicator, almost a negotiator between these different arms, because it, it, it it's exactly like you said. I, I've talked to analysts, and they say, "Oh, where does this data come from? And what does it mean?" It's like, I don't know. Have you talked to the people that you know created it, publish it? <laughs> uh, no. Okay. The I, I guess the caveat there is both sides are, are super busy, and this there's, there's quite a difference between the skill set of an application developer and an analyst. Right? They almost talk there's a little bit overlap, but it's very different subsets of jargon. So data engineers are almost interpreters in that sense but, where they but, speak both languages.
0: But you are still losing that context and you're playing telephone. And, and so um, I, I talked to somebody it's who, they, they literally created a form for uh, data request from a consumer standpoint. And so consumers are able to fill this out. And then the producers, you know, and then it, it triggers a meeting as well as the actual ask is there. So it's not just a JIRA dump on a backlog in your own context. It's, mm. OK, here's kind of the translation between the the consumer context and the producer context. And it triggers them then jumping into a meeting and it goes, mm. oh, we're not having this back and forth. And and the producers <laughs> don't go. No, we- Yeah. You know, they they have to spend all this time to do it. And so, you know, you talked about the producers also saying, oh, we're too busy to to do this. But a lot of them are simple, like, oh, I just have to update this schema at this source. And it literally is a five minute thing if I understand what you want. But if I don't understand what you want, then it's me trying this and you say no. And then it's okay. another three weeks go by, you know, like. There's not that feedback of of, getting people bought in,
1: too. We we are trying to balance it. So when I say we go and and translate between the two, that's often with the three groups in the room. So uh, some of these meetings, especially when there's clearly still a gap in understanding, we will make sure we've got the analyst that's working on this or the reporting engineer and the application teams. And and what I'm really trying to encourage is we're, we're trying to build these patterns and reusable tooling. So we've got a few things that plug into our pipelines that just a simple Docker runs that allow the apps teams now to push data straight into Snowflake, which they didn't have before. And we're slowly getting them involved in building their own DBT transforms. One of the data mesh-isms, I think, is uh, basic statistics. So if you're the team that keeps track of customer signups, Just provide a few daily roundup stats or monthly roundup stats. That's what we're working towards. So given this is a cultural change, it's slow. The apps teams, if you ask them, will tell you that they're already busy and they can't possibly fit any more of this stuff into their backlogs. So the intent is to work with them and and just slowly introduce them to the ideas, build tooling for them to make it super easy and plug and play for the rest of the thing and start getting them just in the same room as the, the people asking the questions. We do still do a lot of back and fro because a lot of it's still just wiring and mechanics where you are just working out which API specifically to hit. You already know which fields they need, so you only need to talk to the apps teams or only need to talk to the analyst teams to clarify these things. Um,
0: And, And people don't know how to build data APIs, like that the APIs that are specific to actually sharing data and things like that. and. Um, there there are some different concerns and, you know, your application model and your data model are two completely separate things because your data they model for your application. And yeah. your, so how, if somebody were to ask you for your advice on, on what's, what's been working thus far in what you just kind of covered, what do you think has been working and, and what do you think you're still kind of reaching to figure out exactly the, the secrets are?
1: So I think appropriate use of technology was was the biggest thing because so much of the data mesh stuff is event sourcing, which I personally love the idea of, but it's, it's a fairly new paradigm. We've been doing databases for a long time. Uh, we're doing streams and CDC now, which I see as kind of a gateway drug to event sourcing. But rather than trying to jump to that end state of everything magical and bimodal data sets through event streams that you can just replay projections. It's like our organization's not quite there yet, but we do have a lot of people that either know SQL or can learn it quite easily. We've got a lot of people that with a bit of help could do a bit of pipeline. So we've got git flow for a lot of our stuff. Now we're, we're version controlling data transforms, which wasn't the case probably 12 months ago. Um, so I think we're, adopting just enough technology to move us in the right direction and we'll slowly evolve based on that. The I, I do want to challenge is is a data API different to a an app API? I, I feel like one of the fundamentals of this, and this is probably me still being a little naive in this space, is if the application publishes what it knows to be the facts of the business, the facts of what it does. And, and there'll be nuance in this. That hopefully isn't super open to interpretation. Uh, an event happened, a customer joined, right? And, and these are the details of the customer. Hopefully that can be modeled in a, a reasonably sensible way that is both applicable to analytics and application integrations. But
0: but so the application cares about what the state is, and maybe it did did the state change, but the data often doesn't care about. It right? Or the analytics is, is like, what's the evolution or what, what, what does it mean? What's the, so like, I'm just finding this, this thing of people trying to just stick a regular API onto their data products and that the consumers are like, well, this is garbage. This is what we want to do to yeah. consume it. So do we just use SQL as, as the thing? and And that's kind of emerging as something where we, we haven't figured out how to Expose the data appropriately via anything other than like a SQL or, or, or maybe a, a stream. But I, I think that's a two, three year type of thing. I've, I've been trying to push data stacks around, they've got an API gateway for um, for Cassandra for development, right? For the application side. But like, can we have that data gateway for? Um, you know, that, that API gateway for data. Like it, there is something different there. But anytime I ask people to imagine that, mm-hmm. everybody just goes, huh.
1: <laughs> so the, there is a pattern in application development that floats around. I, I haven't seen too much, and there's a lot of haters, but uh, CQRS ES, so Command Query Responsibility Segregation, which means that you... Might have two data sources: one for writing to essentially, and another one for reading from. And the reading from will be a, a projection essentially. And the idea of that is your writes are always going to be a bit slower. There's a sense of eventual consistency in it, and. The idea is that backend will be event sourced. So rather than storing just a stateful representation, which is what ninety percent, ninety nine percent of applications do because it's simple, it's a well trodden path. We know the pitfalls, we know where it's it works and where it's hairy. Um, but this idea is to use event sourcing, which is just capture every state change essentially what has happened, and it's similar to the functional programming paradigm versus object-oriented. Most people still do object-oriented, once again, because it's the path well-trodden. And it's the idea of thinking in terms of nouns. We have a car, it goes. Uh, Whereas functional programming is a change to thinking of verbs. You're just thinking about the actions. And everything else is kind of an after effect. Events all things kind of the same significant paradigm shift. But it does close that gap between what data need and what applications need. It means everyone now has the ability to look at state at any given time but you do have to replay it compute is so easy storage is so cheap you can generally replay quite a lot there's tricks to do snapshots here and there too if you want to improve your performance and not have to go back to the dawn of time um, there are application needs for this they're probably less common because mostly you just want to know what the customer currently is but maybe you want to know if they a remember six months ago when this claim came from um, and then having this event sourcing structure in, say, a Kafka or an event bridge where you can get the full history and replay, it it, it does have um, applicable use cases for both data and analytics. I, I think that's data and apps. That That's how you close that gap. The problem is they're both quite significant paradigm shifts. There's a lot of pitfalls. There's some really good books and docs on this, but there's a difference between reading a book and going, yeah, that's a great idea and then doing it in real life and going, oh, that's what they meant. Bugger. <laughs> Does that have any parallel to data mesh? <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, the, the data mesh stuff. Yeah. Same thing. It's like, oh, we, um, yeah, missed out there. <laughs> that, Oh, you mean the whole thing. So the, the yeah. data mesh parallel is um, that if you can move your apps to event sourcing, so, like i said your app uh, it knows what's happened in the app it knows someone has joined it knows someone has left it knows someone has paid if you emit sp- these things event of da, 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 that's how excited i am i'm tongue tied uh, if you if the application emits <laughs> these things as business domain events it says customer object joined so that's the verb now to a lot of applications, that's enough because now they know to trigger off the welcome pack uh, for other applications that want to know the current state of the customer. They just need to know how to replay a projection over that. So replay these events, right, either from a snapshot or from the dawn of time if they want to. And you can re- replay it and you go, okay, at this point in time, which is most likely now, this customer is this age and uh, has the this address so we can mail it to there. Uh, and the same deal goes for the analytics teams. They can use exactly that same series of business events and say, okay, as of the end of financial year, last year, we had this many customers, right? Because you just replay to that point in time. So that's similar in, in the data space, the Lambda or Kappa architectures for data warehousing. Follow this kind of.
0: And, well, and, and I kind of wonder with how cheap storage has, has gotten. like Super cheap can you just do append only, right? Like where, where you just go, yeah. Oh, you know, like Cassandra's got this thing of, you know, very, very, very wide rows where you you can have, um, I think they say don't have more than a hundred thousand columns, which like, what? Like, whoa. <laughs> you know, people are like, how does that? How do you do... <laughs> right. And it's very sparse and it's not that there's a, a null value. It's just that the value doesn't exist. And so it's not like it's, is or not or null it's just like oh there's just a lot of these things where the column just in that row doesn't exist and so um you know is that how how people should start to model it or that you just kind of append only or that you say okay this this um person we're gonna have the same id but that's not the unique identifier the unique identifier is is the Action and that the ID can be reused, and so that you say pull all the things with this ID or like there's just like these different concepts around it. But um, I mean, we, we we could probably talk about uh, all this stuff for for uh, <laughs> days and days. But um, kind of bringing it back to to people on their journey, one thing you mentioned was the domain driven design and and that where where did you find that people were most aligned with you uh, or that that this went smoothly and where did you find where it didn't and, and maybe where, where it didn't if you could um, reflect on those with any ad- advice that you might have or, or just like tell people that hey this is going to be painful <laughs> like that they're not, <laughs> not
1: going to and, and not expecting it yeah no it's definitely painful that there are some consumers that i why do i even want this just give me my data what are you doing? Why are you making my life hard? Um, and the biggest pain, like I said, we're restructuring how our data is landing to make it look more business oriented and less uh, teams specific. So there's certain users with certain tools where that means a lot of manual point and click chains. They're, they're not happy at all. Uh, <laughs> the longer term approach is to actually work with them to make it easier for them. So we have got some Uh, facades that go back into the old world, which in DBT is pretty much select star from new world to replace those old views. Hopefully we'll turn these off, but there's a really long tail on this kind of stuff. Uh, And the, the longer term dream is to actually get these people weaned off these older transformation ETL tools and just slowly turning them off, move these people, teach them the new technology, tell them how much more employable they'll be, with these wonderful new data stacks on their resume which uh, has been both great for hiring and terrible for losing people but that, that's kind of the nature
0: yeah i mean you you invest in your people and if people are like oh i'm going to be continued
1: to be invested in then
0: okay i might stay but yes
1: also, well, like, you, there's the poaching and that stuff have, have you heard the joke the the cfo uh. says what if i train my staff and they leave and the cto says what if i don't train my staff and they stay so it's uh it's definitely better to have trained staff whether they come or go and and it does help attract people i think yeah um and it makes the work more interesting and fulfilling uh so yeah the the challenges have been people on on the older technologies and a lot of that's just people change management making sure you you care that, that they're struggling with this offer help and a light at the end of the tunnel which like i said might be another job uh, <laughs> the people that were most on board with this. So we've got people in the dev manager space that have loved the domain-driven design and microservices uh, DevOps movement. So some of it's in the sale, like know what people are interested in. And and these people are really easy to get excited about this whole self-serve. You too can do it. Look how easy it is. Uh, they've been amazing because they have a higher tolerance for failure because a lot of these things you're developing or adopting and it's like, oh actually, sorry, we need to delete that and start again because it was a terrible idea. Um, yep. So as long as you're yeah, as long as you're working with these people and like I said, most people are pretty open to it. Some people just want you to get out of the road so that they can do their job. Uh, so there needs to be you need to answer the fundamental question of why to yourself and then to them. On these things why are you doing this well it's it's to actually enable this to make it easier to find the data read the data use the data um,
0: and, and uh, if, if I could make a couple of summations out of that would be um, one is the make sure you've got you leave room for evolution right that have that, mm. that, that high tolerance for failure is about having that room for being able to evolve. And, and what you talked about with the consumers that just don't want things to change, again, what I'm, I've, that's something I've heard quite often, and it's just the way data has been kind of treated or, or the way data has been done historically is the consumers don't want anything to change because everything that changes causes breakage right? And and they don't know when that breakage is coming and they don't know why it happened or what Mm -hmm. they can do to fix it. So if you can kind of hold their hand towards, no, we're going to, we're going to create this communication change. So you understand this breakage is coming and, and it's not a breakage, it's an evolution. And so we're going to pair with you so that you can evolve what you're consuming out of them to be, uh, to, so that you don't have any disruption in what you need, and you're going to get better information because you're going to have that back and forth information flow, versus just I need this report. Well, why do you need this report? It's just been the same report for five years, and the business has moved on. What you're looking at no longer makes any sense, yeah. right? <laughs> you're, yes, you're you're, you're, you're your report is in ancient Greek. So nobody's writing that. Nobody's doing that. So,
1: And it's great. emailed to these five people that haven't worked here in six years, right?
0: <laughs> oh, they're always the best. Uh, oh, <laughs> I, or or, or but, when that changes and this person hadn't been there for, for two years and then the person who had been getting the forwards of their emails then leaves and this new person goes, what is this?
1: Yes, yes. Actually, and and that's a good call out, too, because for me, a lot of this is is maturity of engineering processes. And it it seems obvious. You want things to be more resilient. Uh, We've been pushing people to idempotent runs. So historically, we had a lot of uh, event or cron-driven jobs. And when this one at the start failed, which it always does, it's takes a lot of time to manually rerun and unpick and fix. So moving to a world where things are either fully event-driven, so when this thing picks back up, everything just flows, or uh, item potent, so they're just running every hour with the DBT transform. And whenever it comes back, these things will just catch up. Right. So reducing that maintenance overhead is is helping free up the engineers that are building these data products in the first place. So they're happier with that. There's still a long way to go, but... Uh, The plan is to pick apart some of the noisier things that fail more regularly and just make sure they've got breathing room to build this new world. That has benefits for the end users and you you need to sell this to them. Look, we're making these things more resilient. You know how that thing always fell over? We're going to fix that. And you'll see that all of a sudden you won't have to send us an email at 6 a.m. at end of month to wonder where your financial data is. It's it's just going to be there. And if it's not there yet, it's coming. It's just all automated it's all uh, resilient or anti-fragile as they say the Dev space
0: yeah i think that's important to I, I, I don't remember who said it if it was somebody at data kitchen or monte carlo but they were talking about every time you have a a data incident um it's a learning opportunity and you you should not just go what what caused this but you should try to then mitigate it so that it won't happen again and you can't mitigate everything stuff is hmm. going to stuff is going to go wrong stuff is going to break you know this once in a lifetime event you know there was the oh yes uh, the black what, what swan was, event but what, what was it like reset a get in or something like that with aws where um they were uh you had to re reset all of your instances or it was like 85 percent of instances out there needed this one update it was back in like
1: 2018 uh, or something like that it would have been a heartbleed or some kind of critical vulnerability a, you,
0: yeah, see, little, you know yeah something and so but yeah it,
1: there's no point automating yeah yeah a- a- having reasonable approaches to what you actually improve and what you just say look that's fine and I think that's part of the slo thing that I'm really excited about too uh, historically we in particular had this whole mantra of it has to be perfect it has to be 100 I'm like no 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 it, it doesn't it really doesn't, because the cost of it is exponential, and the benefit is certainly not exponential. Right?
0: This is where uh, you know I got into uh, kind of Slack—I would say Slack fights, not just uh, disagreements, but Slack fights <laughs> propose, um, about data mesh supporting um, real-time consumptive requirements. Because if you have that real-time consumptive requirement especially for every data product, right? Like one-offs or whatever, it's like, okay, probably shouldn't, but it's okay, you know, that they're consuming at the mesh level, but really they should just be having an API and blah, blah, blah. But um, but if you're trying to say that every single product sh- should have that, the cost requirements just become astronomical.
1: And And if you it from an engineering perspective too, right? Because yes. this is still a difficult oh. problem to solve. And and I, I, I had real existential issues with this early on because I came in saying the technology is there. We should be doing near real time for everything. It's so possible with uh, We'll just do event sourcing and... And then realized that it needs all of the applications to be written and most of the organization to be retrained and decided to tone it down a little. And it's like, yeah, no, you know what? Maybe Ally's good. We'll just do dbt. Everyone can do it, and it is the reality. It's it's perfectly fine. And um, much like organizations like uh, GitHub comes to mind, where they do things like Rails, and everyone's like, oh, it's so slow. And it's like, yes, but that only matters in this tiny little subset. And once you do the the good enough you can get 80% of the work done with 20% of the effort. And then you find those little edge cases where no, actually, we do need real time for this. Okay, throw your engineering effort there. Don't try and build a spaceship of complexity for every use case. Keep it simple. And I think that's been something that's really helped our adoption is just picking technologies. And DBT is amazing. I, I shouldn't gush over it, bit. I, I just love the the simplicity but how it evolves on technologies like SQL that people already know, especially now that tools, that the big cloud warehouses can process so much more data.
0: Yeah, I I kind of wonder specifically about DBT is because it's such a a, a GSD tool of a get stuff done. Is it that (laughs) thing that's, that's sticky when you talk about scalability, right? When you talk about, hey, we're going to be putting this into code, that this process is code, is that something that 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 sticks there, or is it just something that we can just entirely do uh, from a code standpoint, or do we just we just have some kind of orchestration that just kicks off the DBT job and we don't care, right? Like I think yeah. that's probably where it goes, but I also am kind of like, hey, it could be that it's it's something that's that's very data engineering focused, um, so. Uh, As we're getting, we're, you know, been an awesome conversation, but we're getting towards time here. Um, One thing that I wanted to talk about was um, the workflows of the people that you're uh, working with, right? Like Bente Bush was on and she talked about um, part of the self-serve platform for the producers. She's making sure that there are people who have done the software engineering side and not just the data engineering and that they're people that who have built the application platform are very familiar with the software engineering workflows. And you kind of talked about these differences in, in communication and workflows and, like, what people really want. Like, we've talked about it a little bit, but do you have any advice on what, what are your recommendations there to kind of get people into the room, and then get people out of the room with some value add, that they, they, they came into the room, into the conversation or whatever, and then after the conversation, they're more bought in or that you've added value to them so that you can continue to scale the process.
1: Yeah, the, the important part there was understand people's processes, where we're trying to definitely build a platform, not just solve other people's problems. The idea is the platform is so much more scalable because as you add new applications teams, they they now have the tools to do it themselves. Um, and that was understanding, okay, who are the people producing this data? How do their workflows look? How can we integrate this in as low frictional way as possible to make sure they're able to produce stuff to say Snowflake or EventBridge? So, working with them directly uh, as part of the dev flow to build the patterns and then stepping back to mature that a little bit and spread it out to the other teams to make sure everyone's comfortable and it works for everyone. We've had a few missteps there where we've done some significant rewrites of a few components and and maybe broken a few things outside. Um, so uh, the, the main lesson there was, make sure you communicate that things are changing and you react quickly. If you do break other people's stuff, make sure you're very responsive to that because uh, it's not um, whether you break things, it's so much as how well you react when you do. I think that's inevitable. Um, In terms of, sorry.
0: Oh, I was just saying, I think intentionality around everything and, and empathy.
1: Like it just, yeah, empathy—it's oh, such a big thing, right? <laughs> Nobody cares what you know until they know you care. I, I think such a lovely way of phrasing that. I've got a cliche for every situation, Scott. <laughs> uh,
0: I, 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 might, I might tattoo that one on. I think. think
1: so you, you were you were gonna continue in reverse, on. so you can see it in the mirror in the mornings.
0: <laughs> I'm just thinking of Karen in, in Mean Girls, where she puts the K on, and it's it's backwards. <laughs>
1: and misspell a word so you get um up on all the instagrams and tiktoks yeah i guess the other the other side of that is tying the, the, the consumers into that and one of the big things early on was just helping bring developers and analysts into the room because um software developers often didn't realize how much things they changed impacted these downstream workflows and and quite how many people within an organization were impacted by simply adding a field or renaming one or, or changing the values in it so just building that little bit of awareness like that, that's pretty standard change management stuff and, and making sure their managers and the managers and managers are aware of this stuff and we've seen some people go you know what we need to treat data as, as more of a first-class citizen and it's like great data engineering will be there to help consultant and the broader data platforms team. So his he, analytics engineers, if you need help modeling anything or you need to talk to someone that might be using it, I'm, I'm happy to just get people in the room and start the right conversation. So a lot of it's just facilitation and uh, joining the dance.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, Max Schultz had talked about this and, and it's a through line in a lot of this, of that they can't care, application engineers can't care because they can't know what changes are going to break. And mm. so when you, you can't just go to them and say, your changes are breaking everything. If, if you get them in the room <laughs> with, with, with empathy- we that, we've been doing that for years, you're right, it doesn't work. But, but they've got to do their job, they've got to evolve their application yeah, yep, schema. Yep. So like, if you can work with them and say like, how can we make this so your changes don't break these downstream and that, that people really do care about these changes like the more that you can get them to actually have that empathy because otherwise they're they're in analysis paralysis if they have that empathy but they have no idea what they're going to break then they're like i'm just you just put so much stress in my head (laughs) that every change is going to break all this stuff but
1: eh, i I I have a job i can't worry about that and and you're right so it's coming in with solutions and i think emitting things as streams, like we're trying to wean everyone off this whole database replication. Uh, Sam Newman's building microservices has a whole, here's how you can integrate. And the worst option is integrating at the database level, because it's an implementation concern. You see so many things that were never intended to be seen. And if you want your teams to be loosely coupled and, and fast moving, uh, that, that's really not the way to do it. So making sure anything new we're building is is providing an event stream and then making it easy for that to ingest into snowflake and build transforms over the top um, and that making sure we have that happy pathway for as close as we can get to data mesh which is really lightweight pipelines with very little transforms in them but then also helping people that aren't quite there yet so we do still do data-based replication where there's not enough time in the application team and we clear about okay this is where your pitfalls are this is why this is a bad idea and why you should put some time in the calendar to to work towards other less coupled approaches Uh, i think yeah, like i said building that awareness showing people patterns and and the way forward and and helping them build and develop these things giving them other people who've walked that path um so finding your pioneers and then helping them coach the the settlers and the town planners that come afterwards
0: (laughs) You do, you do really have an analogy for everything. <laughs> so, um, so, I, you know, as we're wrapping up here, uh, I'll drop the, your preferred contact information in, in the show notes Is that can be LinkedIn or like, how do you want people to reach out to you? And, and what do you want them to reach out to you about what, from everything we've talked about today?
1: Yeah, look, I'm just always up for a, a conversation on all of these sorts of things. Like if you're curious or, or got ideas about anything that, we seem to be troubling about feel free to send it through and if you don't hear from me it wasn't appealing or i'm busy so <laughs> keep trying until stop <laughs> but yeah linkedin is going to be your best bet
0: and i'm assuming nib group is hiring and that uh you're, oh you're yes i have a data parent. engineering
1: role it's on seek it's probably on the nib careers page it's it's probably in a few other places too uh we we're Hiring software Uh, engineers—it's a great place to work. Like we're big on autonomy. We've got a really good work-from-home culture. Mostly Australia and New Zealand, I think, at this stage. But if you're really appealing, we we might have a look at what other things we can do. Um, But yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. Well, this has been so phenomenal. So thank you so much for for taking the time, Kurt. Like really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, that was brilliant. All right, and thanks everybody for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Kurt Gardner, Engineering Manager of Data Engineering at Australia's NIB Group. As always, you can find his contact info in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.